Amen. If you have your Bibles with you, you can uh, open them up to the book of Acts, chapter 10, verses 34 and 35. If you have it, say amen. If you don't have it, say wait for me. Amen. The book of Acts in the 10th chapter in the 34th and 35th verse reads, Then Peter began to speak. I now realize how true it is that God does not show favoritism, but accepts men from every nation who fear him and do what is right. Father God, we thank you so much for your word. We thank you that uh, your word is your love letter to us, Lord, and that it speaks to us just as much today as it did hundreds of years ago when, when it was written, Lord. And we just thank you so much that despite of our sin, despite of the fact that we don't deserve your mercy and your loving kindness, that you forgive us and that you accept us, as this passage says, Lord. You accept us. We long for acceptance, Lord. We do so much looking for it. But you accept us, Lord. Thank you, Lord. And you accept men and women from all nations. And we thank you, Lord, that you are a global God, Lord, that you have in mind the salvation and the redemption redemption and the transformation of every nation, tribe, and tongue. We thank you, Lord, that you are a global God. We thank you and we praise you. Lord, we lift up this time to you. We thank you for this time of worship. And now we ask, Lord, as the reading and the hearing of your word, Lord, we just ask that we would all hear from you. I pray that I would get out of the way and that we would just hear a word from you this morning, Lord. Have your way with us in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Uh, it's good to be here at Eastern Nazarene College this morning, and uh, it's a lovely campus you guys have. I, I'm actually from Boston. Well, I'm not from Boston, but I, I consider this my second home. I used to live here. Uh, you know, I went to seminary here, um, and uh, used to live, you know, right over the river in Dorchester, Cobham Square. Uh, so we got any Dorchester people in the house? Or? All right, all right. Um, and uh, so, yeah, you know, I, I know this city well. Uh, used to go to Stash's Pizza and, you know, over on Columbia Road and chop it up. So uh, this is, you know, this is a beloved city for me. But I never, uh, never got to come to ENC the whole time I was here. Uh, so I'm glad to finally be invited and to come check out this beautiful campus you guys have. Um, yeah, I, I never really even uh, got down to Quincy. I was just telling Corey the only time I, I ever really even came to Quincy was to go to Pizza Hut. Because um, this is like the only Pizza Hut in the entire city. So, and Walmart. So you guys know the Walmart. Um, so it's a joy to be here with you guys today. And um, yeah, I want to talk to you guys today about my two favorite things. Uh, so uh, one of the, uh, Corey, as he was introducing me, kind of uh, told you a little bit, but I'm a, a, a doctoral student at the Catholic University of America. And uh, I, I'm, in the, I'm in the Department of Semitic and Egyptian Languages with a focus on the Christian Near East. So what does that mean? Um, basically, it means that I'm, number one, that I'm a nerd. Um, and I'm very proud of that. I'm a nerd for Jesus. And, uh, but it means that uh, basically my, one of my favorite things is I love learning about Oriental Christian history. What's Oriental Christian history? Well, it's not what it sounds like. Uh, it's kind of an antiquated term. Uh, I, think, I think we should change it, but that's the term that scholars are using. But uh, Oriental Christianity is what we were just looking at. Um, so uh, has anybody here ever heard of the Coptic Church before? Has anybody maybe heard of the Malankara Church before? Or maybe the Syriac Church before? Okay, so we, got, uh, so we have some familiarity with this, um, but, uh, but basically Oriental Christianity is that branch of Christianity that separated from Catholicism back in the year 451, 
uh, and uh, over a Christological issue that I wanted to just talk with you a little bit about. And, uh, it, but these traditions have survived to this day, and it's Christian communities that are in North, uh, Northeast and East Africa, uh, as well as the Arabian Peninsula throughout the Middle East and South Asia. Um, so these are uh, Christian communities in what you know, a lot of us, at least in the tradition I grew up in, evangelicals like to label the lost or dark part of the world, the 1040 window where we need to bring the gospel. Well, a lot of us don't realize that the gospel has actually been there uh, before it was here. Um, and so there are Christian communities that have been existing there. And we just saw some images of some of these communities in India, Egypt, Ethiopia, Eritrea, Iraq, uh, Iran, uh, Lebanon, Syria, and um, in different places like that. And so that's one of my, you know, favorite things. The other thing, the other favorite thing I want to talk with you about is racial reconciliation. That's a, a more of a modern concept, more of a modern idea. But I love talking about racial reconciliation. I love the fact that the Church of Jesus Christ is finally getting on board. There's this movement going on among us, you know, evangelical Christians, and there's all these different networks and nonprofits and churches popping up that are talking about racial reconciliation and. Uh, you know, uh, we know that you know racial reconciliation or diversity is a is a is kind of a buzzword. You know, there's there's dozens of books written about it about how it applies to the corporate sector. And uh, but we know that as followers of Jesus, that diversity is not just something that's PC or very 21st century of us. Now that we have a black president, but that diversity has been something that's been on God's heart uh, since day one. Right? God called Israel to be a light unto the nations, so that He'd bring His salvation. To the ends of the earth. So uh, diversity and racial reconciliation is something that's on God's heart. And there's lots of things that are on God's heart, um, but uh, that's something that he's particularly put on my heart. And you might be wondering, how do those things tie together, right? Um, they, they seem kind of different. Um, well, just to, just to tell you, what I wanted to talk to you about is, uh, you know, the title for the talk was Global Christianity, right? Global Christianity in church history. Um, you know, like I was saying, people are getting really excited about global Christianity. Uh, you know, you know, there was a, a really good book that came out a few years ago, uh, The Next Christendom. Anybody ever heard of that book? It's a good one. You should check it out. And Philip Jenkins writes about uh, how the center of Christianity has, um, has been the Western culture, the Western world, Europe and, and North America, but how in the 21st century that is a new reality that's changing. Nowadays, the center of Christianity is Africa, it's, it's South, Southeast Asia, and it's Latin America. That is where the majority of Christians are reside and while Christianity has been dying off in Europe and it's you know dying off in mainline North America right now Christianity is booming and thriving and people getting saved by the millions in what we used to think of as the 1040 window um, so it was, it was kind of a challenging book and uh, a mentor of mine who I, who had the privilege of coming here that you guys heard from last year Soon Chan Ra wrote a book that was kind of a follow-up on that it's called the next evangelicalism so even the title was kind of a wordplay and uh, Sung Chan was looking at how that reality, how that global reality is now affecting us in the states, how the nations through immigration are coming to us. They're, and in a way, they are re-evangelizing us. We, we, maybe some of us are used to thinking that we in the states, you know, we are the bearers of the Christian tradition and we're called to go bring it to the rest of the world. But actually, the nations are bringing the gospel to us in a country where mainline churches are dying out. Right here, in, in, you know, right here in Boston is a great example. There are historic large churches that are empty on Sundays that maybe have 10 people in them. 
uh, whereas uh, on the other side, you go to Dorchester, you go up down Washington Street, and you might find 10 churches on one block, uh, predominantly non-Western cultures, you know, uh, immigrant storefront churches, Haitian churches, Cape Verdean, uh, Jamaican, Dominican, what have you, all on one corner, and there's, they're booming by the dozens. And, that, and the Emmanuel Gospel Center uh, in the South End has done some amazing work on researching how Christianity has been, how they, what they call the quiet revival, how Christianity has come back to Boston in a major way, a city that people, and a region that people have considered a, a spiritually dead place, right? Well, uh, what the Emmanuel Gospel Center has shown is that that's not the case, that Christianity is indeed alive and well, the gospel is thriving in Boston. But it's not thriving among the Western people that, used, that it used to be, but now it's thriving among the people from other countries that have brought the gospel here, right? Um, and so uh, that's, you know, that's kind of all background information. I'm hoping and I'm kind of assuming that we're all on the same page with that, right? Um, but the thing that I, that I wanted to talk about today, and the, the reason why I'm interested in this Oriental Christian history is because a problem that I see in how... You know, global Christianity is spreading. You know, Christianity is a, a religion of all nations now, and we're seeing that not only overseas, like Jenkins points out, but we're seeing it right here. We're seeing a very global, multi-ethnic Christianity, right? And I'm just, you know, I'm so excited uh, and I'm so pleased to see how diverse this school is. Um, you know, Corey was just telling me that over the last few years, you guys have been going through some changes here at ENC, and uh, it's becoming a lot more diverse. And I think that's an awesome thing. I praise God for that. Um, yeah, I mean, uh, diversity is an awesome thing. And, but I think the changes that we're seeing here at ENC are happening all over the place. You know, I went to Wheaton College. and I, I went to a Christian college just like, you know, you guys do. And, uh, you know, when I was there, I think we had about maybe 6 7% people of color. Um, and so, uh, and that's, you know, actually, that was, when I was there, I was told that was actually doing pretty well. Uh, compared to a lot of Christian colleges. So it's sad oftentimes that Christian colleges are kind of behind, uh, you know, the, the secular institutions. But, um, but I was, you know, so you guys have something like 30-something percent, one of the top five uh, most diverse Christian colleges here at DNC. So you guys should, you know, in some ways I'm kind of preaching to the choir. You guys are doing the stuff that I'm talking about. You guys are seeing the globalizing, the increasingly multi-ethnic nature of the church uh, that, that's happening, right? And that's a change. But one of the concerns that I have is that as we're seeing uh, more and more globalizing of Christianity, um, we, one, one thing that concerns me that, I, that I'm seeing is a lack of contextualization of the gospel. You, you understand what I'm saying when I, when I say contextualization? I mean that basically um, what, we're, what, what I'm seeing both overseas and in the States is that while Christianity is growing and while it is you know, growing by leaps and bounds, Oftentimes what happens is that there is a, a, a Western reception of Christianity in non-Western cultures. And so basically a lot of times what's happening is that it's not the pure gospel of Jesus Christ that's going out and being received and being given to the nations of the world and to, into non-Western cultures. Sometimes as much as it is a gospel that's wrapped in Western white cultural trappings presented to cultures around the world, right? And so there's, a, there's an assumption that even though what Jenkins says is true, that Christianity is predominantly people of color, right? I mean, you used to think of people around the world think of Christians as a Western white, white religion, but the reality is, is that most Christians in the world are people of color, right? But even though that's the truth, numerically speaking, people still think of Christianity as a Western religion. It's still seen that way, and so there's a resistance, there's a pushback to any uh, movement of contextualizing the gospel, right? Making the gospel real. When people of color who are not from the Western, from Western backgrounds, want to receive Christianity and to uh, make it 
fit with their cultural understandings. There's oftentimes a pushback because the, re- the world that we live in says that, no, Christianity is a Western cultural thing, right? And uh, some people call it Western uh, or, or cultural captivity. There's a lot of people t- writing about cultural captivity of the church, right? That, that, that the gospel is being presented uh, not in its pure form, but with Western cultural trappings, right? And so there's a, there's a resistance to it. I remember when I was at, uh, at Wheaton, I was in chapel just like this, and uh, we had a speaker come. He's actually now a good friend of mine. His name is Richard Twist. He wrote a good book, uh, One Church, Many Tribes. You should read it. And uh, he's talking about contextualization, right? Making the gospel real for other cultures. And he, he's coming from a, a Native American uh, background from the Lakota tribe. And he, uh, he came to our school when I was, I was a freshman. And uh, any freshmen in the house? All right. Got some freshmen. Well, I was a fresh beat. And uh, I was sitting in the pew, right? And I was feeling him. I was like, yeah, that's right. You know, because I had, you know, uh, never, you know, really heard from a lot of Native American Christians, but I, he was talking about just how the church is going in the Native community and how, you know, he's working to contextualize it to make the gospel make sense with Native American culture and not westernize Native Americans, but allow them to express their, express and praise God and praise Jesus Christ through their, you know, cultural traditions. And he ended his talk with doing a, a dance. He did a, a Lakota dance and he had uh, ethnic garb on. And, um, and I was like, man, that's awesome. But the next day uh, on campus, we had a, uh, in our campus newspaper, they had a picture of him doing his dance, front page. And I think the, I think the title was something like, uh, like, like Pagan Speaker Brings Heathen Culture to Wheaton College or something like that. And it was, it was, I was uh, and the whole, you know, the article was just about how, how inappropriate it was and just how our, you know, uh, how we can have somebody doing those heathen pagan dances in Jesus' name and how, you know, that's not appropriate. And, and it was, it was kind of disturbing to me, um, and it, but it, it, I think it was a good picture. I mean, it was disturbing to me because, uh, I, you know, what, I was thinking, what, what's, the, what's behind that? Or what you're saying is that for a Native American to become a Christian, that, does that mean that they have to look, think, act, and dress like a white person? Or is it okay for them to, you know, in, make the gospel contextual to their community. I mean, it, it sounds, I mean, it, it, it was disturbing to me. It made it seem like basically the message was, and I think what's often sent by the Western church is that you can come into this, but we've already ha- we already have this culturally packaged. So when you come into this Christianity, you have to look, dress, think, and act like we do and speak like we do. And that's oftentimes very damaging, I think, and it hurts the diversity of the body of Christ that God wants us to have, right? And so... Um, the reason that you know I find the Oriental Church history fascinating is because I went when I was in seminary here at uh, Gordon Conwell, uh, the urban campus in Roxbury. Uh, any Roxbury people in the house? And, okay, we got one. All right. So, uh, um, so uh, we we took this trip to Egypt, and I was just floored. I was. Uh, we started learning about the history of the Coptic Church. That's the you know the the, the indigenous Christian Church of Egypt, and. I was just floored because um, we, it was a group of predominantly African-American um, or uh, Afro-Caribbean students uh, that were going, but it was a mixed group. But we were all just so emotionally touched because we were learning about the history of the Coptic Church, how, you know, it was a, their, 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 their tradition, their legend is that, you know, the Apostle Mark brought the gospel to Alexandria and that a Christian church formed there. And then from that spread out into the desert, into monastic communities and, excuse me, grew up into what still survives today is the Coptic Orthodox Church, and it's a church that goes all the way back to the first century. And the reason that was so emotional for me was the fact that 
as an African American, I, I just always grew up thinking that uh, black people, uh, not just African Americans, but, you know, but black people in general, that our Christian history is rooted in slavery and it's rooted in colonialism, right? Um, and so it was just really emotional for me to see a, an African church tradition that goes all the way back to the first century that has nothing to do with, it didn't come by colonizers, it didn't come with mission schools, uh, it didn't come with, uh, with slavery, but it was freely accepted by Jewish people from the Middle East, bringing it into Africa freely, right? And uh, it, it, really, it really touched me, and that's why you know, I got into it. Um, and so you know, the, uh, you know, the Christian tradition uh, in, the, in the Orient, in the Christian Oriental Church, um, it, it's uh, predominantly rooted in Alexandria and Antioch, and that's, I, that's what I focus on, predominantly uh, ancient church history. And, uh, uh, but what happened there was, there, you know, Christianity was growing in, in, in Egypt and then into Ethiopia through uh, missions from Egypt, right? And the Ethiopian church traces their uh, route all the way back to Philip in uh, Acts chapter 8. And also in, uh, in, throughout the Middle East and into Asia, Christianity was flourishing through what's called now the Syriac Orthodox Church, right? And so you have there uh, people who trace their ancestry uh, to Jesus himself. There's a, there's a tradition in the church that, that the king of what was their kingdom was called Edessa actually met Jesus and was converted. Now, you know, all of these different church communities, you know, they claim apostolic connections. How seriously we take that, uh, you know, it's, it's, you know, it's kind of up to, up to you. I mean, most Western scholars don't believe that, but um, I think... I, I, don't, I don't think we can know, and so I don't, it's, while it's not provable, it's not improvable either. And so, you know, also the Malankara Orthodox Church is what I was talking to you about, the Indian Orthodox Church, and they traced their uh, ancestry to St. Thomas, right? And also some of the Syriac Orthodox Church went over into China. So if you've ever, been, if you've ever heard of Christians in China going back to the 7th century, uh, that also comes from Syriac Christian missionaries that went over to China. And there are, there's evidence, there's actually plaques of... of a history written in Chinese with Syriac on the bottom that tells about the history of, of and it, it, it attests to about a million Christians in China uh, in, a, in, I think it was the 7th century, I want to say. Um, and so, you know, again, these are, this, you know, Christian missions, first few centuries was going throughout Africa, going into Asia, and the church was, was booming, right? But, you know, there was a, there was a schism, and I, I, I can give you just a brief history of that, and then just close with some ideas for how we today can apply this. But, um, Basically, it was the Council of Chalcedon where these, these, these churches in Asia and in Africa split off from the Catholic Church. And does anybody remember, took, took your church history, anybody remember the Council of Chalcedon? Does that ring a bell? Okay, so we got some, all right, so just to remind you, that was a council in 450. That was the one where they were arguing about Jesus' you know, persons, right? Uh, you know, the, the hard thing about every time in church history when they made a council and they kind of made a decision, that that decision they made just brought another question that had to be answered. That's the problem with that. And so, you know, at, at Nicaea, you guys remember Council of Nicaea? Yeah, no? I know this is nerdy stuff. I know, just bear with me. But basically, um, that was where they decided that Jesus is, is divine, right? He's not just a created being. But when they said that, when you said Jesus, was, their words was very God of very God, and that's where we get our Apostles' Creed from, um, that brought up the, the other question as well, if Jesus is divine, well then how is he human? How does the human thing integrate with that, right? So there was a, uh, there, there was a person named Nestorius, anybody ever heard of him? He's from, he was from Antioch, and he, uh, at the Council of Ephesus, uh, a few years after Nicaea and Constantinople in 431, he was saying that Jesus was a human who had divine nature given to him later, right? And he was, he was famous for saying that Mary was not the Theotokos, he wasn't the bearer of God. And so Cyril of Alexandria was fighting against him on that issue, and he was denounced by the church, Nestorius was, 
and uh, it, was, it was made official that Jesus was truly divine, right? And that he had one united nature, right? But so, and that's what Cyril said. Cyril was from Alexandria. Now, a few years later, uh, an, another Egyptian monk named Eutyches was arguing that he was basically taking Cyril's point about Jesus having one nature, and he was really emphasizing it very strongly, and he was saying that Jesus has one nature only, right? And, and some of the Western Christians thought, well, but he does have a human nature too, so how does that all work out, right? And then the, the Eastern answer in Egypt and in, and in Syria, the, the answer was that he had one nature that was united. So he was human and he was divine, but those were brought into one united nature after the hypostatic union. So that's what we call miaphysa. That view is called miaphysitism, right? It means one united nature, right? And so you might have heard the term monophysite. That's oftentimes how these Christian communities are referred to, but that's actually not PC, so don't call them that. They don't like it because they're not monophysites. They don't believe in only one nature. They believe in one united nature of two natures, right? But basically what came of that is Pope Leo in his tome, if you've ever heard of Leo's tome, he basically made the decision. He said they had a council and they made the decision that Jesus has two natures that are united. And if you've heard this, you know, if you've heard that um, phrase, uh, that his two natures are united without confusion, change, separation, or division. Um, that was the official decision. And so the churches of Alexandria and Antioch did not agree with that, and so they split, right? That, so that was, when, that was the first split, right? And uh, what happened after that is, that's probably why most of us don't hear about these Christians today, is because uh, in a lot of our Western uh, church history, we don't hear about these because they were cut off. And what happened after that is when they were cut off, there was a period of about 200 years where there was lots of uh, colonial practices, practiced by the church in Rome and Byzantium towards the churches in Antioch and Alexandria. And just to give you an example from, from Egypt, after this decision happened at Chalcedon, they actually removed Egypt's pope and placed a pope that was uh, sim sympathetic to their Chalcedonian views about Jesus having two natures into Egypt, and he was to rule. And so that really made the Egyptians upset, and they really kind of rebelled, and there was a lot of theological resistance towards the Byzantine Empire uh, during the later 5th uh, and then all through the 6th century. And there was people like Timothy the Cat who wrote uh, against Chalcedon, where he just vehemently said, we as Egyptians are against uh, the Chalcedonian decision. And it really became kind of an, it wasn't just a theological argument, right? You know, it wasn't just a heady thing, but it, was, it really became kind of a cultural thing because, you know, one example of this, so you know it's not just my opinion, is that uh, a quote from uh, Timothy the Cat's uh, treatise against Chalcedon actually um, refers uh, frequently to Chalcedonian theology as being unknown and foreign, right? Whereas, uh, in contrast to the people of Egypt, so he would co constantly refer to this foreign doctrine being in, in in opposition to the people of Egypt. So, you know, being against Chalcedonian theology for the Egyptians really became, uh, a, it really became part of their cultural identity, right? Um, you know, another example of this would be, probably the best example was, uh, once again, later in the 6th century, the uh, Byzantine Empire placed uh, Cyrus as the uh, a pope named Cyrus in Alexandria to rule over uh, the Coptic Church. And uh, whereas the Copts actually had another pope, ben Pope Benjamin, who they considered to be their authentic pope, and that was who they uh, actually adhered to, even though it was Cyrus who um, was actually in charge. And there was lots, during this time, there was lots of uh, imp uh, using, using economic and social and political disenfranchisement towards cops that they didn't agree with this theological position. Um, one source for that would be John of Nicu in his Chronicles. 
Um, but uh, one, another good source, in the, at least in the Coptic church, is Samuel Kalamon actually uh, writes in his, uh, in, well, it's written about him in his, the life of Samuel Kalamon. It's written that he said, we do not accept this tome or that which is written in it, nor yet do we accept the Council of Chalcedon, nor do we have any archbishop but our father, Appa Benjamin. Anathema to this tome, anathema to the Council of Chalcedon. Right? Anathema just means like, you know, you're wrong and you're cursed. That's a, that's a nice fancy church word, church history word, anathema. They like to use that. But anyway, after this time, you got 642, you got the Islamic conquest, right? And so that's when, so in the current day, right, today, the Coptic church, the Syriac church, you know, they live in predominantly Muslim countries, right? And so they live as minorities today. And so the Islamic conquest comes in 6, uh, 632, and uh, I'm sorry, in 624. And uh, from that time basically on, uh, you know, the Coptic church and the Syriac church, they live as minorities in their own countries. And that's the condition today. Today, Egypt, I think, is about... 85% Muslim and about 15% Christian, and the majority of the Christians are, are Coptic Christians, right? Um, but when we saw some of those photos, right, and a lot of them have crosses tattooed on their wrists or on their forehead even sometimes, and uh, they live in the same neighborhood. So in the same way that we have white and black neighborhoods, they have like Muslim and Christian neighborhoods. And uh, in many ways, the Christians live as minorities, right? But those of us over here on the other side, we, a lot of us like myself, we don't know about this history because the Western Church cut off its own brothers in Christ, you know, other, over really a pretty irrelevant theological issue, I would say, uh, you know, talking about all that, one, you know, one, two distinct natures or one united nature out of two natures. How, I mean, really, how many of us today would really care about how you say that? It's kind of, it's kind of pointless, but today it's really, it has, it did really create a global schism that separated the rest of the church in Africa and in the Middle East and that was really when, and since then, Christianity has been seen as this, as this Western religion, right? But if we, if we go back to this history and we look at this, we realize it's not. It actually, it actually grew and flourished and still exists today. It, it doesn't, I mean, I was talking about the missionary activity of these churches and it was going throughout the world. And, uh, you know, sometimes I wonder, as an African-American, I wonder uh, if that schism didn't happen and Christianity continued to flourish in Africa as it already was. I mean, if you guys have ever heard of the Nubians, the Nubians were, uh, they're an ethnic group that still exists today, and they were also, at, for a period of time, predominantly Christian. Uh, but then when the Islamic conquest happened, they were forced to become Muslims, and they, predominantly today, uh, Nubians in Sudan are, are still Muslim. And I, so I just can't help but wonder, you know, had Christianity continued to grow throughout Africa and throughout Asia, maybe uh, Christianity wouldn't have come through the vehicle of European slavery and colonialism, and we wouldn't have had to wrestle with the question that we're wrestling with today, right? But we have to wrestle with it because that's the world we live in. But I still think that going back and looking at these examples of, these empowering examples of non-Western Christianity that are not trapped in the box of Western Christianity can be empowering to us today, both Western and non-Western alike, because it helps us realize that, I mean, the first thing I think that, again, to kind of uh, bridge all this nerdy stuff with more modern stuff that we deal with, I think one of the ways that the first thing that we can take away from this is understanding and realizing that Christianity is not a Western religion, right? And I know that that might be challenging for some of us, right? Because some of us are raised to believe that. But Christianity is not, is, it, we have to really free Christianity from being trapped as it, it has to look like this, it has to sound like this, it has to, you know, um, I mean, I, you know, I, there, we, we have to really stretch ourselves, right? I remember, you know, when, um, when, I was in, when I was an undergrad at Wheaton, that was really my first time kind of engaging with kind of larger culture, white, evangelical culture. And there were so many uh, things that, you know, so many ways that I was made to feel like, 
uh, I believe in Jesus, I worship God, and I, I love Jesus, and I'm part of the church, but because I don't do this and do that, I guess I'm not, I guess I'm not a real Christian. You know, I, um, and, uh, you know, it's just, I, I, like, one example would be um, the worship style is very different, right? I mean, I think God is in all of our worship styles. God is honored in all of our worship styles, right? But I just could not really, me personally, I could not get with the acoustic guitar. I just, you know, it's not really, like, I don't, you know, it doesn't move me, you know? And, but it felt like everyone played the guitar. Like, on my floor in my dorm, it was like, everyone's playing the guitar. Oh, my goodness. And, you know, I like gospel music, you know? And that was how I, how I worshipped. That was what I grew up worshipping with. And I, and I remember having a, a friend of mine saying, well, that's too, it's too loud. It's too, you know, it's too disruptive. You can't really hear, you can't focus on God with all that noise and people. And I'm like, well, see, that's a cultural assumption you're making, that because we're loud, we're not hearing God, right? And but see, and you know, and I'm not saying one way is right or wrong. I'm just saying that we had to come to a, we need to come to a point where we recognize that a lot of our assumptions are cultural, right? A lot of our assumptions are not necessarily biblical, but it's stuff that we've imposed on the scriptures, right? And and but it's not wrong to have a culture, right? It's not all of us have it. First of all, all of us have a culture, and all you know, all of us express our Christianity. We all we all everything we do is culturally based, right? It, we're not supposed to be, the goal isn't to be culture-less, it's to be aware of our culture, but also to be respectful and also embracing of other people, the differences, right? And that's what this text is really about in, in Acts chapter 10. You know, when Peter had his vision of food coming down from heaven and he didn't want to eat it and he said, oh, that's not clean, you know, he, uh, God realized, don't call anything unclean that I've called clean. You know, he really, he realized that, oh, now I realize that God doesn't so favor him. It's not just about my people and the way we do it. Right? And that, decision, that led to Acts chapter 15, where the Council of Jerusalem decided that, you know, these non-Jewish Christians, it's not necessary for us to impose on them being circumcised, right? And, I mean, that has large implications on global Christianity, that as Christianity spreads throughout the world, and as we see a multi-ethnic Christianity here, let's, you know, let's, let's embrace not only having people who look different, but let's really be able to understand that we also act different, and we see God differently. Now, please don't mishear me. Please don't hear me say that, you know, I'm not saying that the Bible is relative, right? There's one Bible, and there's one Word of God, and there's one Gospel, and we all believe in the same Gospel. But that one Gospel hits us in different places. You know, Andrew Walls is a missiologist, and he has a really good analogy for this, that the Gospel is like a, it's like a stage play, and the church is the audience, right? There's one Gospel, there's one play happening. There's not multiple plays. It's not like your truth is true for you, my truth is true for me. No, 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 there's one play happening. There's one Gospel. But we are seated in different places throughout the theater. People in the balcony, they have a different perspective of the play. They might be able to see the whole thing at once. People in the front rows, they have a different perspective. They can see the details, right? They might be able to see the nose hairs or whatever else, you know? Um, you know, and it, you know, people stage right versus stage left. They, we all have different perspectives, right? But there's one play. And the more we get together and talk in the intermission, we can fully grasp the full meaning of the play, right? It can, you know, we can say, well, I was sitting over here and this is what I saw. Oh, really? I was sitting over way on the other side. I didn't even see that, you know? But we have to have the humility to realize that we don't see the whole picture. We don't have, no, none of us, none of us, Western, non-Western, black, white, Latino, Asian, none of us have Christianity, the whole thing. None of us understand the whole scriptures. But the, but the more that we share our perspectives with each other and, first of all, recognize that we have a perspective, right? And that, secondly, recognizing that our perspective is valuable. And then thirdly, recognizing that people, other people's perspective is equally valuable as mine is, right? The more we'll get grasp the fuller picture, right? And, and so I hope that that makes sense. 
Uh, I hope that um, the connection makes sense. But I think just to close out, uh, I just want to encourage you and kind of, uh, I guess, give, give an encouragement and a challenge to you to be living this out. I love the, the, the ways that I'm seeing both your school, you know, this, this school community here, both as administration and also as a student body, beginning to learn to embrace the changing climate of our country and of, and of our world, right? Um, the world around us is changing, but our church is changing too, and we're beginning to see, um, even though there was that schism that kind of halted the expansion of the gospel into the, uh, the uttermost parts of the world, that has been completed now, albeit unfortunately through uh, oftentimes a vehicle of colonialism and slavery, but the church is becoming now in the 21st century into a place where we realize that this is a church of all peoples, and as we do that, let's really embrace a full, rich diversity, right? But the challenges I want to I give to you is as, as students, right, is, um, you know, for those of you that are white students, that, you know, you, uh, you know, Christianity is packaged, you know, we live in a world where Christianity is seen as it belongs to you, right? I want to encourage you to change your perspective on that, to realize that actually Christianity is not a Western-only religion, right? But that Christianity can look different ways. I want to encourage you to learn about that, because uh, I have a feeling, you know, as a majority culture, it's not, I'm not coming down on you. Um, it's not, it's not, you know, please don't feel guilty. You know, I, know I, I meet a lot of white people that are like, oh, I hate that I'm white, you know. I just, I feel so horrible, you know, like, I wish I was black, you know, or I wish I was, you know, and like, like, well, you're not, you know, and so that's, that's, you know, exercise in futility, right? But it's not, it's not about making you feel guilty, because that doesn't help us and it doesn't help you, right? But it's about realizing that, no, I am in the dominant position, right? And so I need to really take a position of learning for once, right? Because, you know, all of us know the history of European Christianity, right? From Thomas Aquinas to Billy Graham, right? We know about yours, but how many of us knew about this, right? How many of us know about African American church history, Latino church history? So learn about different things. I encourage you, get involved in a, a local church, Go to a local church that's maybe different from yours, maybe different from the tradition you grew up in, right? And students of color, I have a challenge for you as well. Please do not check out, right? I know, I remember when I was a student at, at Wheaton, you know, we had a little black table and, you know, we would just sit around and be angry and we would, we would just be like, I'm not, you know, getting involved with nothing. You know, I don't, I don't have to learn from nobody because I'm here, you know, like I even came. How many of these other students are going to go to Howard or, you know, they wouldn't last a day, right? And that's valid. There is a lot of truth to that, right? Because by being here at this school, you have taken a big, you have taken a big risk, right? But I want to encourage you, don't give up, don't close yourselves off, but really get involved and take those positions of leadership. You know, take, those, take time to share and, you know, engage with the campus, right? Let's, let's learn from each other. And, you know, uh, to the administration, I really, you know, I loved it when I heard that a lot of the administration went to the Duke Divinity School, you know, uh, Center for Reconciliation Studies Conference. And please keep doing things like that, right? If we, want, if we want to see a more diverse school, then that needs to come from the top down. So I just want to, I, I know that we all want diversity. It's in your mission statement. But I want to encourage the, the administration and the faculty to prepare yourself, prepare yourselves as individuals and as a body for that. And are you ready to have a more diverse student body? Are you, are you ready to teach about this church history as well, you know, as well as European church history? Are we ready to really teach a contextualized curriculum? All right? Um, that's, a, you know, that's a big question we have to ask. If we say we want diversity, it is a big task. Um, and so uh, let's make sure that we're up to it. But... Uh, but there is an encouraging note at the end that when we all come together and not, we don't only come together looking differently, but we will act differently, and that's a good thing, right? Let's come together and let's learn from each other. Let's celebrate. And there is a, it, it is a difficult task uh, living in, in diversity and living in contextualized diversity, but when we do it, there is great 
great joy. And, there is great, and the, we please the Father when we stand in unity like that, right? Um, and so let's, let's move forward and let's continue to do what you guys are already doing as a school. And let's, let's continue to do that in the spirit and the joy of the Holy Spirit. Amen? Let's pray. Father God, thank you so much, Lord, that you love us so much. Despite our weaknesses, despite our abilities to learn from each other, to listen to each other, uh, it's just easier to make other people act like we do. And um, that's not your heart, though, Lord. You, you yourself are a relationship of, of different characteristics, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, an eternal relationship with one another. And, um, Lord, may we live out the full calling that you've, that you've put on our lives, Lord. May we live it out to its fullness, Lord. May we not only be together and look different, but may we really embrace one another's differences, not see them as unchristian or just wrong because I don't understand it. But may we really, truly love one another and die to ourselves, Lord, as you have commanded us. And may we live out the calling, Lord, that you've placed in us as a, as a church, Lord, one holy apostolic church. And may we live that out in joy and in celebration and in honesty and, um, and, uh, and in bearing with one another. And so I thank you for ENC. I thank you that they've answered the call above and beyond what many Christian colleges have done. And I just bless them in their, in their fellowship, in their community, in their learning, um, and in this community. We thank you, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you.